Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Brothers and sisters, welcome to today's chapter of the Big Picture Show here live on Radio Islam International. I'm your host for today, Mustafa Darsot, standing in for A.B. Dauji. Excuse me. And a special welcome to our Radio Lansa listeners in Durban and Peter Marisburg and all those on live stream. Well, it's been quite eventful, I must say, especially in the city of Shwane, Pretoria. And, um, and of course, we've been hearing about the Palapala situation as well. And there's been some interesting developments. Starting with Palapala, well, early in the week, SAR said that they do not have any record of Hazel Mustafa, not, no, no connection to me, just the namesake, um, of declaring his uh, money or his dollars when he arrived in South Africa to buy the, uh, uh, the, 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 the bulls or the buffaloes at Ramaphosa's farm. So they've got no record. And the presidency had a lot to say that, listen, it's, uh, it's the obligation is on the buyer to disclose, not on them. Then it was a day or two later that SARS came about and said that they, everything with Ramaphosa's tax affairs is 100% clean or kosher. And if that's not enough, well, just now this came in that the public protector has cleared Ramaphosa of any wrongdoing in the parlor, parlor burglary scandal. So what the public protector has said, sparing Ramaphosa of wrongdoing, finding that he appropriately declared interest in his farming business, right? went on to say that Ramaphosa fulfilled his obligation to report the burglary at his farm in early 2020 to his head of security, who is Major General Wally Ruerder, who is a police official, and, and also found that whilst the outcome of, uh, and also said that, William Ro- uh, Wally Roder will face consequences for an alleged abuse of power in investigating the burglary covertly. So this is the uh, this is what will mar his uh, victory in this investigation, right? And uh, or the, you know, so let's see what comes out of that. So I guess basically presidential powers. You know, people were speaking of presidential powers, but. Presidential power is not used in the correct way, if one may put it that way. And a lot of people had faith in Ramaphosa, especially five years, five years, three months ago in uh, December 2017, when he became president of the NC and Nasdaq then, and when he became the president of the Republic exactly five years, one month ago in February 2018. And of course, we are seeing nothing but only safeguarding his own interest and the whole country can burn. Well, moving on, the city of Shwane, shame, the city of Shwane has been faced with a lot of drama in this past 10 days, starting with the resignation of the, uh, of the uh, coalition, uh, uh, of the co- DA-led coalition mayor, right? And then election of a new mayor by name of Dr. Morunwa Makwarela of COPE, right? Who, during the time of the coalition, was the speaker of the house and uh, he came on and then didn't last uh, well lasted very few days and was out because apparently uh, according to the city manager by name of johan metler found that he was insolvent right declared insolvent and as an insolvent you cannot occupy any public office unless you have been rehabilitated so he, he's obviously the uh, mayor's position was advertised by the city manager and uh, Macquarella 
then got his attorneys into action to send a very threatening letter to the to the city manager to say that there's no such thing. He's been rehabilitated. He's mentioned it to you, and you did not give him the opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, to uh, obviously, uh, obviously did not give him the benefit of the doubt in this opportunity, and you still went ahead and and advertise this post and stops do uh, or desists from doing so immediately or desist from doing so immediately and apologize to him. So on, um, I think on Wednesday morning, I heard him on SAFM being interviewed by Stephen Curtis, and uh, he said that, well, in 2016, I was declared insolvent, right, or him and his wife, and somewhere between 2016 and 2020, he was rehabilitated, but he did not get the document, although the court declared him rehabilitated. So where's 2020 and where's 2023? Well, that was three years ago. And he did. Uh, he still waited for the document. So kept on asking him, but why didn't you make an effort to get the document, etc.? And he was waffling about. So nevertheless, that was then on Wednesday. Then suddenly on Thursday comes the mysterious document that uh, surfaces to say that he's been rehabilitated and he was reinstated as mayor on Thursday. But then suddenly resigned yesterday. So two short stints of serving the mayor's post, and he resigns saying that he's, uh, he's not admitting any guilt, but he's leaving the position to protect its integrity. He also resigned as a PR counselor for COPE. So in his resignation letter to the city manager, Johan Metter, he says he's done this to protect the image of the office I occupy and the good name of the city. I've decided to remove myself from the position of mayor in the city of Shwane. He says there's no form or admission of guilt of, on the prevailing public allegations, but a desire to let the city focus on service delivery and other critical business. Then why did you go and rush and take the position? And that's so after we removed once, you went out of your way to produce what has now turned out to be a fraudulent document. Mr. Makwela, Dr. Makwela, you belong in jail for fraud. There's no other word to it. And then you produce this flimsy document that says rehabilitation. As a court document, at least the least it should have said notice of rehabilitation. Right? But he got the rehabilitation in the North Court of South Africa. Have any of you heard of the North Court? Has the country got a North Court, South Court, East Coast? East Court, well, that would be here in Durban, but there's no East Court in the East Coast. And West Court in Cape Town, have you heard of any such courts? No. Yes, there is in the High Court of South Africa, Houghton Division, or before it used to be North Houghton Division, Pretoria, but now it's all Houghton Division. Then you get Pretoria and Johannesburg. So it was not Houghton Division before Pretoria and South Houghton Division before for Johannesburg. Right? So now, where did this North Court come from? Then it's got there before the Honorable Mr. Justice Musa. Well, a Muslim person's name had to come into this. And it's found that on that day of February 7th, 2018, there was no such Justice Musa on the roll for that day in court. In fact, he has only been uh, appointed to the High Court as an active judge from 2022. Right? Then it comes to the point of uh, where it says they're the first applicant and the second applicant. Well and good. But no mention of respondent. Normally on a court document, you'll have the applicant's name and the respondent's name. Well, there's no uh, uh, respondent. And then it says there that uh, 
under so and so have been you know master reference number is hereby rehabilitated and a stamp well that stamp doesn't look like a court stamp at all and there's been other flaws in this document so <laughs> this is what is produced a photoshop document and now the office of the chief justice has got hold of this and they say that they're reporting it to the relevant authorities to start an immediate investigation and to take action. This is open, blatant fraud. And he says, and of course, you know what, I've still yet to find a politician accused of corruption to say that I've done nothing wrong. Uh, sorry, to, the, to admit that what I've done, all they say is I've done nothing wrong. Same here, and there's no admission of guilt. What a circus. What an embarrassment. And for COPE, well, COPE is in Johannesburg, the city of Johannesburg. Now they, 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 they caucus leader is the caucus uh, leader of, of the party, is the speaker of the council. Then you've got here, this guy here, what he did. Suddenly COPE has flip-flopped from being an opposition to the NC to being in bed with the NC, but going so much the extra mile that they'll do anything to make themselves relevant. And this is pure desperation. Right? This is absolutely disgusting. There's no other word for it. Anyway, that's all I have time to on the local front. Moving abroad, well, you've heard about the... Um, last week I mentioned it, but then I was stuck on the name about the Israeli minister who was apparently stalled from getting a visa to visit the United States. Turns out so he was the minister of finance and his name is Bizalel Smotrich. So apparently the US, uh, United States Department of State, which is the Foreign Affairs or DERCO equivalent, um, made, uh, found that his comments on wanting to wipe out an entire Palestinian village, which is Huara, calling them repugnant and disgusting. Right? And then, of course, the American Jewish formations, various of them, American for, uh, for Americans for Peace Now, etc., have all protested uh, he getting a visa. Nevertheless, and it seemed on track to be that all systems go in the sense that, you know, there is a strong chance that he may not get the visa. But eventually, the U.S. State Department capitulated and yesterday granted Smotrich a visa. Should we be surprised? No. Are we surprised about the comments made by the State Department last week? Yes. Should we be surprised that, they, that the State Department bent over backwards now to give him a visa? No. And it turns out so that Smotrich has apparently apologized. Uh, I've yet to see that. But anyway, he's apologized for making those comments. And he'll be going on to America for a fundraising campaign. Well, that's about it. And you must know that's the pressure coming from APAC and other right-wing Jewish groupings in, uh, sorry, Israeli, pro-Israeli far-right groupings in America. Well, the uh, United States, speaking of the United States, the House of Representatives have unanimously voted yesterday to declassify intelligence about the origins of COVID-19. And on a vote of 419 to 0 was the final approval of the bill, sending it to President Joe Biden to sign into law. The debate was apparently brief and to the point, Americans have questions about how the deadly virus started and what can be done to prevent future outbreaks. So according to the 
representative from a Republican representative from Ohio. He said that the American people deserve answers to every aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, just extend it that way, my friend, to say that the world deserves answers, not just the American people. So let's see what comes out of that in the next few days. And then you go on to England. You know Gary Lineker, that famous uh, footballer of England, and uh, just recently during the World Cup in Qatar made some terrible statements against Qatar. In fact, uh, you know, uh, in fact, he what he said, he principally refused to watch the opening ceremony. Right? So now he's under the hot water uh, for making remarks at the government at the BBC where he has his show if I'm not mistaken, it's called Match of the Day. Yes, that's uh, that's his uh, show, which has a lot of followers, about 8 million followers and viewers, right? Uh, and they've suspended his show. So apparently, Gary Lineker, oh, sorry, he's got 8.7 million followers on Twitter, right? So on this week, he tweeted to his followers, right, that uh, <clears throat> he says that the UK government's behavior towards asylum seekers was similar to that used in Nazi Germany. Yes, that's what he said. He said that the, that the UK government's attitude towards asylum seekers or members of the UK government's attitude towards asylum, asylum seekers was similar to that used in Nazi Germany. Where does this come from? Because Rishi Sunak and his uh, Home Secretary uh, uh, what's the name? Uh, I forget. It. I, I refer to her as Cruella Deville. Yes, Suella Braverman. Yes, but I refer to her as Cruella Deville. So Suella Braverman and and Rishi Sunak have said that they want to enforce a law to prevent boat migrants going across the Channel from France to England and or into to Britain and arriving on British shores. And they've also got the cooperation of uh, Emmanuel Moron, uh, Macron to stop these boat people from heading out of France to come across the channel into prison. And Lenica, of course, made these comments, and the BBC has, of course, under pressure from the government, have removed him from the show, right, and have said that, uh, what they've said, that the BBC has decided that he will step back from presenting match of the day, right, until we've got an agreed and clear position on his use of social media. We have never said that Gary should be an opinion-free zone oh. or that he can't have a view on issues that matter to him. But we have said that he should keep well away from taking sides on party political issues or political controversies. And, of course, certain Conservative Party members of Parliament have called on the BBC to discipline Gary Lineker after his tweet, right? And... Uh, now, the poor chap is in hot water. So, from doing something terribly wrong back in during the World Cup to try to do something principally right, he is in big trouble. Anyway, we'll take a short ad break and we'll resume shortly, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum, dear listeners. Welcome to the second half of the show. Uh, oh, sorry, second part of this first chapter of the show. Well, speaking of sport arena and controversy around it, uh, dear listeners, you know, cricket is a big sport around the world and is especially very big in India and Pakistan, Sri Lanka, of course. But in India, it is known as the national sport. Um, and um, 
Did you know that in the city of Ahmedabad, which is the capital of Gujarat, that there's an 80,000-seater stadium called the Narendra Modi Stadium? Yes. Okay. Um, and it's a new stadium built in honor of Modi. It must have been built by, uh, what's his name, Guantam Adani, right? And um, there's a test match currently on that started on Thursday between India and Australia. Now, what's so peculiar about this cricket match? Well, the question to ask, is it a cricket match or a political rally? So it turns out so that on that day, on that Thursday morning, Modi took the Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese on what they call the lap of honor around the stadium. Right? They were seated on a chariot-like vehicle made out of a golf cart which bore the message friendship through cricket. And then and that Modi taking this lap of honor around the stadium named after him presented was presented with a picture of himself with by Jay Shah. Now who is Jay Shah? Jay Shah is the secretary of the BCCI, the Board of Cricket and Control of India, and is the son of the Union Home Minister or the Minister of, uh, Home Minister of India, Amit Shah. Right? And this is apparently the first visit by Modi to the stadium, sorry, after it was refurbished, not new, after it was refurbished and renamed after it. So it turns out so that this particular match, 80,000 tickets were only sold to BJP supporters. Yes, that's correct. All 80,000 tickets were sold to BJP supporters. So that's why one is asking the question, is this a political rally or a cricket match? And you can understand the propaganda that is trying to be portrayed through this cricket match. Sickening. Disgusting. There's no other word to describe it. Anyway, moving on to a very important um, story that has developed. And, of course, uh, this is, this is a way it goes from here is of importance to everybody, especially in the Muslim world. And, uh, in particular, the MENA which is the Middle East, North Africa region. Regional rivals, Iran and Saudi Arabia, agreed yesterday to restore ties and reopen diplomatic missions after a Chinese-brokered talks right, that took place between them and they released this joint statement yesterday. This has come about after seven years of broken relations. Okay, of course, this move caps a broader realignment and efforts to ease tensions in the MENA region. But we all know that Riyadh cut ties with Tehran after Iranian pot, uh, protesters attacked the Saudi embassy in, in Tehran in 2016 following Saudi's execution of the Shia cleric in, uh, in Saudi Arabia known as Nimr al-Nimr. So we've got the coming together of Shia-majority Iran, and Sunni majority Saudi Arabia, right? And of course, you know, you must know that you got this coming together, but what has happened is that they've obviously been supporting rival sides in several conflict zones throughout the region. And um, what does this mean for going forward? Well, it's firstly a big slap in the face for America. And you must know that the Americans 
apparently, from what I've heard, that the uh, Saudis apparently kept the Americans informed, from what I've heard, about these uh, talks with Iran. And I'm just trying to find what was the reaction uh, from the Americans. Oh, sorry, the Americans said that uh, cautiously announced the statement that we will monitor the situation as it unfolds. So you must understand that that the, the tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia go back over four decades from 1979 at the time of the Iranian Revolution, right? And, uh, and you must know that uh, there's been a lot of uh, skirmishes between the two, coming to blows, if one wants to put it that way. And uh, it all had to do with Saudi Arabia openly supporting Iraq, during the eight-year Iran-Iraq war, which started in 1980 and finished in 1988, right? And um, after the ending of that war, that eased tensions. But then, of course, something or the other came up. And then tensions were strained, then relaxed. Tensions were strained and relaxed. Then there was a, a blanket ban on Umrah, Hajj, or there was a boycott from the Iranian side of going for Umrah, Hajj, etc. Then came the Arab Spring of 12 years ago, January 2011, and then, of course, when the war started in Syria, that's where you saw split once more. And that split just got wider and wider until seven years ago when they executed Nimr al-Nimr. Who was Nimr al-Nimr? He was the head of one of the opposition groups in Saudi Arabia. He was very vocal, and uh, he was executed, and... The reason why Iran made such a big hoo about it, because he's Shia. The question comes about, if he was not Shia, would they have been so concerned about it? Chances are no. But nevertheless, there's this uh, latest development, which has been brokered by China. And China is doing it for the simple reason, okay, they're doing it for the simple reason in that they don't care what your domestic policies are in your country, Right? All they want to know is that they're dealing with the Middle East region and they want to deal with a stable region. That's what China's whole argument is. They said that, for example, they are dependent, China is dependent on this region for its oil needs. Right? So if there's more skirmishes, if there's, uh, God forbid, is an attack on Saudi oil. Uh, depots or refineries like what the Houthis who are backed in, uh, sorry, the Houthis of Yemen who are backed by the Iranians are doing so, that obviously shoots up prices. It doesn't only affect China, it affects us. Here in South Africa, you know, our petrol prices just jump sky, right? And then suddenly it goes down when things, uh, when things come down. But then the ramp jump, uh, goes sky. Then you got another problem. So you're having this problem here. And these countries have decided to parts and apparently within the next two months will open up the embassies or reopen the embassies in their respective countries. So coming back, what were these tensions that have taken place in the past four decades? Well, it started off with the Iran-Iraq war and the Hajj crack, uh, crackdown. As I said, that the revolution of April 1979, right, uh, when they de uh, declared the, uh, sorry, when they to toppled the uh, Shah dynasty of Reza Pahlavi, right? Saudi Arabia, of course, they did have, they did have 
Iraqi relationship with the Shah of Iran because you must know, again, both were oil rivals and the Shah was also trying to industrialize Iran. Right? Okay. Uh, but however, towards the latter part of his rule, until 1979, relations improved between the two countries. And then, of course, came the, uh, the revolution, right, uh, under a theocracy, okay, and which Riyadh saw as a threat. And, of course, other Sunni rulers as well in the region saw the same thing. And they started accusing Tehran of attempting to export its revolution and assert its influence and its Shia hegemony in the region. So, of course, Iraq, then led by Saddam Hussein, attacked Iran in September 1980, which started the eight-year-long Iran-Iraq war. Saudi Arabia was publicly neutral in the conflict, but was widely reported to have made its ports available for equipment exports to Iraq and to have provided significant financial support. Sounds similar to Ukraine, right? In the sense of those countries that say they are neutral, but at the same time they are pumping Ukraine with arms, right? So then you had the six-nation GCC, right, which is Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, and Oman, right? And this was, of course, set up in May 1981 as a response to Iran's revolution and the Iran-Iraq war. Of course, ties between the two countries nosedive in July 1987 when the Saudi security forces violently cracked down on an anti-U.S. protest by Iranian pilgrims in Mecca during the Hajj. Apparently, some 402 pilgrims were, ki- uh, were killed, of which 275 were Iranian. I remember this very well because that time, you must know, we were at the height of sanctions in South Africa. Very little international news coverage. And if you put on the TV and the news that time, they had this. And, of course, my, uh, we had family, my older brother from Ladysmith, etc., were in Hajj at that time, and they were able to relay what happened. So in response, right, the uh, protesters decided to occupy the Saudi embassy in Tehran, and they burned down the Kuwaiti embassy, right? So this, a Saudi diplomat died during that incident, and after falling out of an, um, uh, of course, after falling out of an embassy window, and Riyadh accused Tehran authorities or Iranian authorities of delaying his transfer to the hospital. That time, King Fahad severed ties with Iran over the Hajj incident and ensuing escalation in 1988. Apparently, Tehran subsequently boycotted the Hajj for three years after, this, uh, after, the, after Saudi Arabia restricted the number of Iranian pilgrims visas because of the 1987 Hajj incident. Then you went from detente to proxy wars. So relations were restored between the two countries in 1991, setting in motion a period of rapprochement. In 1987, in August 1997, sorry, President Mohammad Khatami took power in Iran and attempted to reach out to the Gulf rivals. In December 1997, then Crown Prince Abdullah visited the non-Arab parts of Iran, becoming the first most senior Saudi royal official to do so since the revolution. Two years later, Khatami became the first Iranian president to visit Saudi Arabia since 1979. The two countries went on to sign a security agreement in 2001. But the good times didn't last long. 
the 2003 U.S.-led invasion of Iraq toppled Saddam Hussein and brought the country's sheer majority to power. Iran has since asserted its major influence over its neighbor. In 2005, then President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad came to power in Iran, taking a more hardline approach to regional foreign policy than Mohammad Khatami. So Iran decided, of course, to step up its nuclear energy program, raising Saudi suspicions, Saudi suspicions about its perceived attempts to assert its dominance. In October 2011, two Iranians were charged by Washington with attempting to murder the Saudi foreign minister, Adel al-Jubel, right, who was at the time, uh, sorry, sorry, he was the Saudi foreign minister, yes, Adel al-Jubel, yes. And then following anti-government protests across the Middle East and North Africa countries, which came to be known as the Arab Spring, Tehran and Riyadh found themselves on opposing sides of several flashpoints and conflicts, right? In Bahrain, Saudi Arabia sent troops to crush a Shia-led pro-democracy protest movement in 2011 and subsequently accused Iran of stoking tensions in the country. In Syria, Assad violently cracked down on protesters, which led to what is now a 12-year-long civil war, right, which still persists. Iran backed Assad, while Riyadh lent its support to certain opposition forces, not all certain opposition forces. Meanwhile, in Yemen, Iran backed the Houthi forces who took over large parts of the country, including the capital Sana'a, leading to a Saudi-led military intervention in 2015. Then the next tension point, where MBS calls Khamenei the new Hitler. So the Hajj pilgrimage would would once again become a major point of tension between the two countries Right in September 2015, when around 2,300 foreign pilgrims died in a crush, hundreds of them killed were Iranians. Right, so Supreme Leader of Iran Ayatollah Ali Khamenei accused Saudi Arabia of murder and said that it was not qualified to manage the two holy mosques. So in January 2016, Saudi Arabia executed the Shia caliph Nimr al Nimr who had been involved in anti-government protests in the country's eastern province. Of course, Iran strongly condemned the execution, and protesters attacked the Saudi embassy in Tehran, and of course, in, uh, and the concerns in the northeastern city of Mashhad. Saudi Arabia then cut ties with Iran over the escalation. So the following year, Riyadh and its regional allies launched a three-and-a-half-year boycott of Qatar. Right? That was, I think, in mid-2017, after Trump and Gerard Kushner's visit, accusing it of harboring close ties with Iran and supporting terrorism. Doha, of course, denied the charges, and the rift came to an end in January 2021. So, Saudi Crown Prince MBS said in March 2018 that if Tehran obtained a nuclear weapon, we will follow suit. He also called Iran's Ayatollah Khamenei the new Hitler. And in more recent years, several rounds of diplomatic talks have been held between the two countries in Iraq and Oman. However, this China-brokered agreement on Friday represents the most significant breakthrough, which has been welcomed by a number of countries, yes, well, including the U.S., although they said they will proceed cautiously over it, Iraq, Oman, and the UAE. 
right? So, of course, Israel hasn't given any comment yet. So that's the history of the of the uh, of this uh, of the tensions between these countries. Now, just to give a bit comment here, according to a person by the name of Sina Tusi, and Tusi spelled T W O S S I who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for International Policy in Washington, D.C., right? Uh, Sina Tusi told Al Jazeera that China has a clear interest in improving ties and stability in the region as the Gulf is a vital source of energy for Beijing, which imports energy from Iran and Saudi Arabia. So back in 2019, when Saudi oil facilities were targeted by the Houthis, it temporarily affected the country's oil production, leading to an increase in global oil prices of more than 40%, which was the biggest spike in more than a decade. So according to Tusi, this is the wor- uh, that this was the worst-case scenario for China and that a conflict in the Persian Gulf would affect its energy supply and economic interests. So they're not doing it for any concern. They're doing it for their self-interest. And you must know every single country, including South Africa, has self-interest. So, a chap by the name of Chita Parsi. Now, who is Chita Parsi? Chita Parsi is a lobbyist, right, uh, based in Washington. He's an Iranian of Parsi origin. Uh, you, you, uh, living in the U.S., he's based. Uh, he was. He's, he's the executive vice president of what they call the Quincy Institute, and he wrote a book many years ago called Treacherous Alliance: The Secret of the the Secret Relationship Between the U.S., Israel, and Iran. It's a thick book. A lot of the pro-Iran supporters will deny the existence of this book. And Trita Parsi is not anti-Iranian establishment that we have now, right? However, he is very critical. And at that time, he wrote this book, which was published, I think, in the mid-2000s. I have a copy of the book, and it's quite explosive, right? And it talks a lot about the secret backdoor channel deals between the three countries, right? Okay, and they are happening. Don't be in denial about it, right? They are happening. However, of late, he's also been lobbying Iran's interests in Washington. So, he said that, uh, according to him, that that the U.S. has increasingly, sorry, uh, sorry, he said, he, apparently he told Al Jazeera that the U.S. increasingly has deviated from and increasingly pursued policies that simply make it impossible for it to be a credible mediator. Right? So that's why I said, a guy like Tita Parsi, you have to understand where he's coming from. Right? From the pro-Iran lobby, they'll dismiss that book of his Treacherous Alliance. Google it, you'll come across it there, that they'll dismiss this book of his Treacherous Alliance as propaganda. And they say he's pro-US. But at the same time, he's just said that he says that the way the U.S. is behaving, it's impossible for them to be a credible mediator. And he went on to say that the U.S. is increasingly taking sides in regional conflicts, becoming co-belligerent in regional conflicts, which makes it very difficult for the U.S. to play a peacemaking role. He went on further to say that China did not take sides between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which is correct, right? So they did not take sides between Saudi and Iran has worked very hard to get not to get dragged into the conflict and as a result could play a peacemaking role. Right? Okay. 
So China's breakthrough comes on various uh, comes as various U.S. media outlets reported this week that Israel and Iran were edging closer to war. So, of course, this is a major setback for Iran's plans, or should I say, for Iran's latest round of hoo-has. Sorry, sorry, for Israel's plans and Israel's uh, latest round of hoo-has that they're preparing for war, right? So, Tusi, Sony Tusi said that while China also has substantial political and economic relations with Israel. The U.S. has historically been giving support to Israel and Saudi Arabia against Iran, and so it has not been able to play that mediator role. So he went on to say, I think this is a broader sign of a changing global order and how the period of America being the unchallenged global superpower, especially after the Cold War, that period is ending. For countries like Saudi Arabia, in the past decades, America was the only viable partner. Now these countries have other options. China can give them a lot of support, economical, political, and military relations, and Russia could, can do that too. But it is in their interest that they're live, living side by side with Iran, and Iran is not going anywhere. If the U.S. is not going to give them unconditional support for what I think MBS originally wanted against Iran was a very confrontational policy that they are willing to come to terms with Iran and coexist, which I think the direction they are simply going into. So that's putting it in a nutshell about where these relations are headed. Now, look at it from this point of view. That America, of course, we know for time memorial, <laughs> right, that whenever they've been involved in the MENA region, it's always been one of protecting their American, or should I say their self-interest. Has it ever been in benefit of the people? No. Whoever was uh, their chumchas or whoever tagged along with them were fine until such time they decided to be independent of them or break away from them. And of course, America's wrath came over them. We've seen it with Saddam Hussein of Iraq, for example, right? So uh, the thing is that the, uh, they, 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 they have this thing that they can control the region forever. Now, of course, Russia, and of course, you know as listeners that I'm very critical of Russia, and especially of Putin's plans. But for how long will Russia continue playing second fiddle? Especially being that it was once a superpower during the Cold War, and now that the Cold War has ended, America dominated that spot for, what, 33 years? And they want to make a comeback, and they are making a comeback, right? And of course, this Ukraine war is the result of this. Uh, which is, at the end of the day, a proxy war for both sides, like Yemen has been a proxy war for both sides between Iran and Saudi Arabia, right? Uh, Same with the Syrian conflict, again, a proxy war. The war in Ukraine has been a proxy war between the United States and those who are behind the United States, Europe, Britain, etc., and Russia and those allied to Russia. So the thing is that comes the notion, and A.B. Dalji and I were discussing it this morning, that anything bad for the U.S., is good for the world, right? MBS's moves towards Russia and China is a nightmare for Washington. The question is, will they remove him from power? And just to give you an example of what MBS has been doing, right? MBS has been, of course, asserting his authority as a regional power in the Middle East, right? Okay, and telling America that we are going to do this and we are going to do that, right? At the same time, He's not stupid, so he's not. Uh, he won't tell America, pack up, uh, fold up your tents, 
pack up your bags, leave the leave these bases and leave the country. He won't do that. That's suicide, right? But at the same time, he's playing his cards very well. Of course, very unpredictable. He's a very unpredictable player, but he's playing his cards very well to what he perceives to be suiting Saudi Arabia's interests. And what's been happening, as I said, like if you look at the boycott of Russian oil, Russia has got a lot of oil that it needs to get out of its country, right? And they need to channel that oil out. So what they've been doing? They've been, MBS did a deal with Russia to say, listen, give us your oil at discounted prices. Okay, hear me out correctly. Saudi Arabia, which has the world's largest, or amongst the world's largest top three oil reserves, is Venezuela larger Saudi Arabia? Anyway, it's in the top three. Saudi Arabia, with such a large oil reserve, is importing oil from Russia. One is asking, but why are they doing so? Well, Saudi Arabia also has a domestic demand to cater for, and a big domestic demand. The country's population, with the with the experts, with the labor uh, labor migrants, etc., is over 30 million. Right, so they've got a massive energy demand, and instead of the oil that they're pumping out, which which has to be replaced uh, with the with the Russian oil that is boycotted by the Western world. So what they say, send us your oil. We'll give it to you. We'll give you a cheaper price. So let's say we maybe 20% this or 25% this. We'll use your oil for domestic use. We'll use your oil for domestic use. And whatever, whatever production that we were using for domestic use will be now exported to meet the demand globally. So in other words, buying Russian oil at discounted prices to serve their local needs and sell their locally produced oil to the global world at global market prices. So in other words, Saudi Arabia is making a big fat profit, which they are entitled to. It's a master stroke. And at the end of the day, it keeps Russia and them in favor to each other. Right? Of course, with China now uh, making this deal, and it's upsetting America big time. And that's the reality of what is happening there. Anyway, dear listeners, I don't have much time because we are now uh, almost over with the show. I'm going to paste on Facebook an article by Marwan Bishara, who is a senior political analyst at Al Jazeera, titled Turmoil in Israel, Tradition in Palestine. He says that the ruling fascists are working to unleash greater state and settler violence on the Palestinians and in the process are transforming Israel into a fascist garrison. I'll post it on my Facebook page and on my Twitter handle. Jazakallah khair. Jazakallah to Muhammad at the studio in this for putting the show together. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.